expand your mind and enrich your world. It's time for another outstanding podcast from ICRT. We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week, a roundup of the top news stories from around the island over the past seven days. I'm Keith Manconi of ICRT News. Joining me in studio today is Jane Rickards of The Economist. Jane, hello. Hi, Keith. How are you? Pretty good. And by phone, we're joined by ICRT Southern Taiwan correspondent Michael Smith. Michael, hello to you as well. Hi, Keith and uh, Jane. Nice to be with you. Today on the show, we're going to be looking at the continuing controversies surrounding former national leaders, increased efforts to fight the dengue fever outbreak in Taiwan South, and a widely criticized report that found that police committed no violations during their raid on the occupation of the Ministry of Education last month. Uh, But first, we'll be starting off on the presidential campaign trail, where I think it's fair to say there hasn't been a whole lot of substantive debate recently, but there's definitely been some good political theater. Topping the political theater this week, DPP presidential candidate Tsai Ing-wen's announcement that she will consider attending this year's Double Ten National Celebrations prompted her rival, KMT candidate Hong Shouju, to question her motives. Uh, so here is what Hong is saying. Uh, I got this translation out of the Taipei Times. She said that while she's glad to see Tsai's endorsement of the existence of the Republic of China, uh, Tsai should nevertheless explain why, as the DPP chairperson, she had never attended this ceremony in the past six years. So basically saying, you're coming this year, why didn't you come before? But uh, others were quick to point out that Hong herself has declined to attend the National Day events during the Chen Sui-bin administration. So clearly this thing has been uh, very politicized uh, for, for, for a number of years. Uh, let's unpack that politicization uh, briefly. Uh, Jane, so what's going on here? Uh, it's, it's difficult to go to this thing if the party in power isn't your own? Yes. Well, as Keith, as you said, it's um, clearly political theatre. I think Tsai's attendance has two symbolic meanings. Um, the first symbolic meaning is that she's trying to, sh- she's basically in doing this, she's reaching out to middle of the road voters. She's trying to show them that she can be responsible and that so the first symbolic me- meaning is that she's trying to show middle of the road voters that she can deal with she's willing to deal with the KMT that she can rise above the bickering and um, cooperate with the KMT which will be the opposition party assuming she wins the presidency and as you pointed out um, you know the the KMT has a history of boycotting National Day celebrations when the DPP is in power as Hong Shouju did when Chen Shui-bian was in power. And um, the DPP's boycotted National Day when KMT's in power. And if so if you unpack the meaning of that, um, that to me is synonymous with a stalled legislature when no one can agree with anything because they're just not endorsing the other's point of view simply just for the sake of opposition. And the DPP has that image with middle-of-the-road voters or very light blue voters, very lightly KMT voters. So I think the first symbolic meaning is she's trying to show that she's not going to oppose things for the sake of opposition, that she's willing to reach out and be part of a KMT ceremony. I think the second symbolic meaning, obviously, which Hung has pointed to, is that she's trying to show that even though she is a country which has the Republic of Taiwan in its 
So she's from she's from a political party that has the Republic of Taiwan in its charter, mm. and there's actually been debate about whether to freeze that or not in the in the light of the fact that China is mm-hmm. sort of threatened to respond to independence with an invasion. She's right. trying to show those middle-of-the-road people that she supports the idea of the Republic of China. Mm-hmm. And the DPP's already said that, like with their 1999 resolution, resolution on the, Taiwan's future, but I think Tsai wants to stress that she wants to maintain the existing political order, mm-hmm. which includes the, the government that came from the mainland, which is called the Republic of China. Basically take the wind out of the sails of, you know, that line of attack that she's going to be too pro-independent. Yes, and also too uncooperative. If she, mm-hmm. For example, if she wins and the KMT dominates the legislature. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I don't know if you remember in uh, 2001, uh, as uh, President Chen was uh, overseeing the double 10-day celebrations, just how jarring of an image it was for many people to look up at the television screen or to be there and see... This person who has made many, many comments not in support of the Republic of China now standing on stage and having to officiate at these ceremonies. So we got used to it over the years that he was in power, but I think Jane has pretty much hit it on the head. Uh, the DPP does need to figure out a way of, of being cooperative and uh, being perhaps gracious winners. Uh, that might be a way of phrasing it. Yeah, and I would add that I think so far that my opinion, they're winning in the terms of the gracious winners because Hung's been pushing the fact that, oh, well, why didn't you acknowledge the Republic of China earlier? And I think that if Hung pushes it too much, she's just going to look too ideological. Agreed. And not only is most of the electorate alienated from Hung's ideology, but I think at this stage they're just interested in jobs and bread and butter and having your wages rise and people just after the Chen administration and, say, um, half a million people demonstrating against the ECFAR in, what was it, 2010, 2009, around then, I think people are exhausted and they just want to talk about the economy and something substantial. So I think if Hung pushes it too far, it's just going to alienate people. Yeah, and on the other side of the fence as well, like when Chen came in, the changing of the name of the post office, which had to be changed back, and they were symbolic gestures that he was trying to use as a, a, a statement of like, yeah, there's a new sheriff in town, there's a new way that things are happening. I think Tsai is actually trying to go the other other direction and say, you know what, that is not my priority. My priority is going to be on uh, livelihood, tourism, infrastructure, green technology. She was in Kaohsiung last week talking about the shipbuilding industry. So I think Tsai very much is signaling, as Jane was uh, commenting earlier, that she is not a boat rocker and she's willing to do business. All right. Well, yeah, it does seem like bread and butter uh, are the issues that are going to move more votes rather than these uh, more national identity issues. But national identity issues certainly do make for good political theater. And we have another instance of this rolling out this week, or I guess I should say continuing to roll out this week, uh, with a pair of ongoing controversies surrounding two former Taiwan political leaders. Of course, we've discussed both of these before. The first being uh, former ROC President Li Hui's comments over Taiwan's relationship with Japan during World War II and Lian Jian's attendance of a military parade in Beijing. Uh, these controversies have been around for a while now, but uh, this week it went beyond a mere war of words and progressed into concrete actions. Uh, in the case of Li, the legislative yuan is now set to take on a proposal to eliminate benefits accorded uh, to the nation's retired leaders in cases where those leaders, quote, offend the nation's dignity. So potentially he'll have his uh, privileges uh, taken away from him. Uh, in the Lian Jan case, uh, former vice president Annette Liu uh, and a lawmaker 
uh, filed separate charges of treason against him. So we're getting uh, litigious in these controversies now. But um, we were speaking a, a little bit about this before we turned on the mics. And uh, Jane, it sounds like you're saying uh, this is probably not going to go anywhere. Yes, I know. I think we're talking about more political theatre here because, in my opinion, I don't think that the KMT's move to strip Lee of his benefits. I, I don't think that's going to pass the legislature in this session. I think the DPP are going to obstruct it and they're probably more important bills relating to livelihood. Mm. And then with the next legislature, it isn't clear the KMT will get a majority or not. So, yeah, I think this is a non-starter. Uh, Michael, what, what, what do you see here? Yeah, I'm going to have to agree. Um, I'm actually more interested in the Lien uh, side of it because... It really is quite a spectacle for a former uh, vice president of the ROC, and he did run for president twice and came uh, reasonably close on one of those uh, uh, bids, sitting at a parade in Beijing watching troops march by. And these troops might someday or could someday theoretically be fighting against ROC troops in some sort of a conflict. This image was just quite surprising, and uh, I don't know if it rises to the level of treason, I can't say from a, a legal perspective, but it, it's quite a big deal. Uh, Jane? Yes, um, I agree completely. Um, as we were talking about earlier, though, um, I think that a lot of people, in my opinion, have overlooked the fact that I think what President Lee Teng Hui did was also inappropriate and unnecessary. And the DPP presidential candidate Tsai Ing-wen has said Lee's statement was based on his own personal experience. So when he grew up, his his experience was that Taiwan was part of Japan and oh, we were yeah. fighting he was for Japanese Japan. Japanese through and through. Uh, his brother is uh, enshrined in the Japanese uh, uh, war dead shrine up there in Tokyo after dying in the uh, Japanese military, if people remember. Yes, yeah, well, yeah, well, I, I, I think that many Taiwanese have had that experience, and I think that's perfectly valid, but I, I think Lee shouldn't forget that he's a former le- national leader, and um, until the two ethnic groups in Taiwan have really reconciled, I, I think what Lee... I, don't think what Lee did is on the level of Lien, but I think it's inappropriate and it's not really helping with reconciliation between the mainlanders and the locals. Staying with that uh, idea of reconciliation and, and national identities, I mean, it's it's a pretty interesting moment that mm. we're in. I mean, it feels like we're in this weird mirror world where we have these two uh, former national leaders that are getting panned by uh, opposite groups for mm. opposite reasons. I mean, we're kind of seeing this, uh, they're, they're, they're inverse reflections of one another uh, going on at the same time. Is it is it just a coincidence that both of these are happening at the same time? Or, or, or does this say something about the political moment that we're in? in Taiwan right now? Um, I think you're definitely right, Keith, that this that both Lien and Lee's actions really expose the ethnic fault lines in Taiwan, and um, this is happening just before an election. So even though, as we just mentioned, that bread and butter issues are very important in this election, I think that the sort of ethnic tensions are probably buried well beneath the surface, but yes, they're going to surface. Um, I think what Lien's doing is just... What he's, I think Lien's just always doing his shtick. It doesn't surprise me. I think he would have done it no matter whether his, whether election was coming up or not. Mm. Um, in my opinion, and I'd like to know what Michael thinks, possibly President Lee Teng Hui is trying to balance Mai Ying Zhou by making those comments to the Japanese media. He, I actually have a simpler explanation. Right. Uh, I don't know if I'm right or not, but uh, Lee is, what, 90, 91 years old? Getting up there. Yeah. yeah. He's an older man who um, has been shooting from the hip uh, with comments for quite a few years. Mm. And I think, uh, in my view, he just 
you know, said what he thinks. And I actually don't see the connection between these two. Um, I see the action that Lien took as extremely disrespectful on the actual day where there was a military parade in Taiwan for the ROC military. And I see Lee as just like an older gentleman who's like, you know, yeah, back when I was a kid, it belongs to Japan. Uh, I can't actually agree that the two of them are, are connected or related. I don't think Lee is actually uh, contriving or conniving to sort of, you know, do anything related to the election. I just think he just said another thing that he probably shouldn't have said. He's done this more than once, as we all know. Yeah, I, I agree. I don't think Lee did it um, because of the election. However, Lee, I think Lee might have done it just because the KMTs generally is, he perceives them as moving too, too much too close to China. All right. Well, uh, whatever the connection may be, I mean, I, I do think that it uh, offers up a pretty interesting contrast and a, a pretty good uh, prism through which to view Taiwan's current political context. Definitely. Uh, uh, but we're going to have to leave all of that fun, fun, fun political theater for now because we're going to have to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll be discussing the continuing dengue fever outbreak rampaging through southern Taiwan and a report on police action taken against protesters at the Ministry of Education. Stay tuned for all that after these messages. And we're back to Taiwan this week, ICRT's weekly roundup of news from around the island. I'm Keith Menconi, joined by Jane Rickards and Michael Smith. Uh, well, we covered it last week, but the dengue fever outbreak in southern Taiwan is continuing to rage on. The Centers for Disease Control says the number of cases recorded since the start of summer in the nation has now reached more than 7,000. Uh, listeners may remember we were uh, somewhere around 4,000 when we did the show last week. So uh, it's been a rough week. Uh, so, uh, again, this is mostly southern in, uh, centered in Tainan and uh, a little bit in Kaohsiung. Uh, Michael, what can you tell us about what's happening this week? Well, as you just said, the cases did uh, top uh, 7,400 plus, and 98.7% of those cases are in either Tainan or Kaohsiung, overwhelmingly Tainan. So uh, although we are seeing this increase, and uh, there's like 500 new cases a day reported near the, the, nearly in Tainan, but the CDC director general said that... Um, they're not all that concerned that there's going to be another huge spike because down here in the south over the last couple of weeks, we'd have some very unusual weather. It's been very, very rainy and a little bit chilly and just perfect mosquito weather, if you will. So last couple of weeks have really uh, pushed the epidemic forward, but we've turned a corner on that. We're starting to see sunny and cooler weather and uh, there's thinking that uh, we are pretty much coming to the tail end of this. But um, as we discussed uh, in the news about to the South, I think, uh, earlier this week, the government is going to start forcing cities to do, uh, in the case of Tainan and Kaohsiung, weekly cleanup days where you go around and remove standing water and all of that. And I think once a month they're going to be doing them in the northern areas of Taiwan as well. So we just need to sort of re- um, educate and uh, get people to understand the, the threat involved. But uh, there is pretty much good news that it looks like we're approaching the end of the outbreak. Right. And so most of those measures are just aimed at uh, getting rid of all those breeding grounds for mosquitoes, giving them less places to reproduce. Um, now, 
last year was also a very big year for dengue fever in Taiwan. Uh, and if you just look at the the jump between last year and the year before, I think the record before last year was something like 4,000 cases over the course of a year. Last year was all the way at 15,000. So that's a huge jump. And uh, a number of people uh, out there are saying, well, this is really uh, symptomatic of global warming and global climate change, that now we're uh, in these tropical regions that had kind of gotten past these dengue fever outbreaks. Now we're seeing it have a real uh, resurgence. Uh, Do you guys see anything behind that, Jane? Yes, actually, it's interesting you mentioned that because I interviewed the Central Weather Bureau um, a few years ago and they actually mentioned, I asked them about the effects of global warming in Taiwan, they actually mentioned that there were more cases of dengue fever Mm. because global warming creates more humidity and it's a better environment for mosquitoes to breed. Mm. so yes, I've heard that from the Central Weather Bureau. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a, you know, something that, of course, I don't think either of us are, you know, experts, and we can say for sure. Mm. It's a very interesting theory. Um, I'm going to have to uh, refer back to a infectious disease specialist that I spoke to in Kaohsiung, Dr. Gongming Tang, who's been working on this for uh, 30 or 40 years, and he was telling me that there have been, you know, three, four, five years in a row with almost zero cases, and then you'll have a huge spike. Then you'll have a couple of years of so-so, and then we also can't forget that many of the cases, especially in the north, have actually been imported from Southeast Asia. They weren't uh, domestic cases from Taiwan. So hard to say on that one, Keith. I'm sorry. All right. So I'll I'll try to refrain from reading too much into it and speculation. Uh, But that means that we are ready for our final story. Uh, And that is the findings of a Taipei City government investigation into the July 23rd storming of the Ministry of Education compound uh, by high school student protesters were released earlier this week. And so just real quick uh, to give people the background on this, the protest was, of course, uh, over changes made to the high school history curriculum. Uh, And uh, once police got involved... In the occupation that was ongoing, 33 people were arrested. So quickly after that whole incident happened, allegations of police excess emerged. And uh, Taipei Mayor Ko Wenzhe was very quick to respond with a public apology. Uh, he formed a task force to investigate. So this report out this week that we're talking about is what came out of that investigation. And basically what it found is uh, there was a legal basis for the arrest that the police made. Uh, And so it didn't make any clear criticisms of police conduct. Uh, Now, among those arrested were three reporters covering the unfolding protest. And, uh, well, they were not terribly happy about these findings. They were hoping to get a little bit more insight into what happened that night. Uh, They're saying, these reporters are saying, uh, that there were... uh, No new facts contained in this uh, report that came out, and uh, uh, the investigators didn't even uh, do interviews with police to kind of get first-hand accounts of what happened. So they're saying, you know, this is a very flimsy report, not any real investigation. We still don't have a good final say in what happened that day, so they're not happy about this. So so this brings up a whole lot of uh, issues with regards to press freedoms in Taiwan, Uh, A whole lot of issues with regards to uh, the way that police deal with protests in Taiwan. Of course, that's getting to be a bigger and bigger uh, issue. Uh, Jane, what what, what do you take away from all this? Yes, well, um, I think that because of Taiwan's history with the sort of very repressive martial law regime, which wasn't um, lifted till 1987, as we all know, I think people tend to think that when reporters are arrested in any way or interfered with, that um, the nation's moving backwards and particularly seeing the KMTs in power, because obviously before it democratised, it was they were the sort of autocratic rulers of Taiwan. But um, 
I actually, I, but we actually encountered this um, problem in the Foreign Correspondents Club when I was vice president. Then I was president, and one of the correspondents said, with the with regard to the occupation of the cabinet buildings during the Sunflower protests, that he never went inside because journalists shouldn't trespass. Mm. So I did a bit of research last night, and according to a US non-government organisation, the Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press. Um, journal is actually an extremely murky issue where mm-hmm. the journalists can trespass or not, mm-hmm. and um, they usually have no legal protection in the US. Mm-hmm. And um, they gave an example of a journalist who followed a group of environmental activists to a mine to protest mountaintop um, removal mining in West Virginia. Um, it was very similar to the MOE protest because the protesters trespassed and they chained themselves to a piece of mining equipment and unfolded a banner calling for the replacement of surface mining with wind turbines. So the photojournalist involved was only following to take pictures of the news and um, he ended up with a trespass charge. They, the, the, um, this non-government organisation said it's clear journalists don't have a privilege to trespass and the First Amendment isn't very mm-hmm. clear on this point, but the Supreme Court in the US has ruled that the First Amendment does not protect journalists mm-hmm. from laws of general applicability. So, um, in other words, yeah, being a journalist means does not mean that you can't be arrested for trespass. Mm-hmm. And it sounds to me, just from reading this, that the treatment of this um, journalist who was taking mm-hmm. photographs of the environmental activists is not terribly different from those mm-hmm. journalists who followed the students into the MOE. So, so just from an international perspective. Yes. I think people just need to get some perspective. I mm-hmm. think people have so many hang-ups about martial law, which is extremely understandable. And I think everyone in Taiwan has to be very mm-hmm. vigilant that Taiwan doesn't roll backwards. But I think people also need to keep perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, that's my take on it. Uh, Michael and yours? Yeah, uh, Jane's uh, um, analysis there is, is really uh, very spot on. I'm, I'm just not quite sure myself. Like, if I was in a situation as a, as a journalist and people were walking into the presidential office uh, in some sort of protest or something and I'm there with my camera and I want to get photos and I want to document it, I, I can imagine myself following the protesters in and taking pictures and thinking that I should be able to do this because I'm just documenting what is occurring. But on the other hand, there are trespassing laws and there are rules. I think it's a murky situation all over the world and quite difficult to, to put a finger on. And uh, the fact that Taiwan does politicize everything is a, a big factor in it. But when we hear about journalists being arrested for being in the wrong spot most of the time, we're usually talking about places like Turkey or various other places that don't really have a very good record when it comes to press freedom. So I do worry a little bit personally that uh, we could be perhaps approaching a, a road that we, we don't want to go on. I'm just not sure which one is more important, the trespassing law or the fact that I'm documenting this very important historical protest or whatever is going on. I don't know if you have any further thoughts, James. Yes, well, this this NGO, the Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press, actually noted that you have to distinguish, distinguish between legal technicalities and the spirit of democracy or the spirit of the freedom of the press. But what they were pointing out was in this case in America um, – which I just described, um, you, you couldn't avoid the fact that this person could be legally charged just for But what following. about like a situation in Turkey where you've got a couple of journalists just the other day arrested for being in a security zone because they were covering Kurdish demonstrations, right? So the 
government in Turkey just simply said, oh, this entire area here is off limits because of, you know, safety or protection. So theoretically, uh, the Taiwanese government could do the same thing. They, they, and they tried recently by saying, oh, we'll put this area here and it will be a protester zone. That didn't fly, right, if you recall. And they were also trying to ask journalists to wear vests. Right, identifying yes. themselves and everything. That is, I guess, what kind of scares me more than anything. Yes, well, actually, I was actually thinking a solution to what happened with the Ministry of Education might be a more um, sophisticated version of the whole press vest concept, but um, the TFCC actually vehemently opposed um, the press vest because it just put journalists in danger that they're easily identifiable as members of the press and Mm -hmm. so gangsters in a crowd could perhaps... (laughs) This is a hypothetical situation. Mm -hmm. So I... Absolutely don't agree with the press vest concept, but I think what Kerwin Zhu was actually thinking was he was thinking of ways to actually help reporters mm-hmm. and protect their reporting. So the, the intentions behind the press vests were good, that Kerwin Zhu wanted to help reporters do their reporting while sort of arresting the people that had broken the law or, dam- you know, in, in that they were damaging property or things like that. So perhaps we could revisit that and perhaps the best way to resolve this would be for journalists to negotiate with Kerwinzer um, and negotiate with the government that perhaps that they could identify themselves to the security guards who guard the government buildings and in return Kerr and the central government could give them a guarantee that they won't be arrested if they go in. So you could kind of bypass the trespassing laws and sort of come to some sort of agreement. That might be a suggestion I'd have. Right. Yeah, it's a very good suggestion. I think it, it could possibly work for Taiwan. Yes, I think it could work for Taiwan, maybe not other places. Mm, agreed. All right. Well, uh, I guess the bottom line that we can all take away from this is it's a, a murky issue and a difficult one to get right. So we can only hope that uh, more work will be put into this uh, to try to get it right. All right. Now for our podcast listeners, uh, we've got our final goofy bit. And uh, this week, our, we are back to uh, potentially lewd photos in the MRT. But this time, it's not on your easy card. It's right out there in public places. Uh, Taipei's Shirling District Prosecutor's Office decided to drop charges against five people involved in nude photography shoots in the MRT system and outdoor locations. Uh, And this decision that they made, which came earlier in the week, has stirred up some controversy. Let's go back to the original case itself for our listeners who uh, have better things to do than concern themselves with such things. Uh, Michael, you don't have better things to do than concern yourself with what things. Uh, So what, what, what happened here? This goes back to September of last year, when all of a sudden some pictures of uh, mostly women, a couple of men, in various states of undress. And by various states, I do mean one state that uh, is completely undressed. And these photos were taken, some of them near MRT stations, some even in a uh, station itself. So the question that was put out there was, is this uh, pornographic? Is it lewd? Is it... um, uh, what is it, you know? Mm-hmm. And because the photos themselves did not meet the standard of the grand justice's interpretation of what is obscenity, and there needs to be violence or other stuff, the court said, no, I mean, they are uh, artistic in a way. Nobody was really disgusted by them. But it, it is, it's an interesting story because I don't know very many countries in the world. I don't know if you could get away with taking a nude photo on the uh, subway system of New York, Jane, or, or UK or anywhere. <laughs> Yeah, I think Australians are slightly more lax about that than the US, but yeah, <laughs> difficult, I think. 
But yeah, the, in the end, uh, it, it just came down to, well, this is a photo, a photography club. They're taking nude artistic photos, sharing it among themselves. It doesn't meet the qual- uh, qualifications for obscenity. Mm. And uh, I think it, it harks to a, a bigger issue in Taiwan of where they're still trying to kind of figure out what is acceptable in a free society and what, you know, again, uh, Jane was saying how people are, are so vigilant because of the martial law era and right. how everyone's thinking and constantly wondering, you know, are we pushing the rights of people too far? Is this okay? Is that okay? And it's a, a complicated one. But uh, in general, it seems like it's okay to take uh, nude pictures on the MRT. So there, Keith. So so getting back, I, I did mention that. There, so there, Keith, you're showing me. I'm not against <laughs> it. <laughs> Don't don't try to paint me on one side of this or the other. Uh, so the controversy that did come out over this week, uh, a number of people were saying that if this isn't prosecuted, then that would encourage more people to take nudie photos in the MRT. Uh, I think the MRT was not pleased about this. Various uh, I, I, morality groups, I guess I can call them, uh, yeah, they were not pleased about this. Like uh, social rights or uh, social groups, women's groups, saying that yeah. uh, it would encourage pornography in general and all of that. And, you know, they, they might have a point. All right. Well, uh, we, we, we are living the actual test right now. We'll have to see if uh, porn comes out of every corner of the MRT. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, seems unlikely, but we'll, we'll just have to wait and see. Uh, all right. A well, whole that, new genre. A whole, <laughs> unfortunately, not that new of a genre. But anyway, enough about that. That is it for the show today. You can send us your thoughts on the week's major stories on the Facebook page or on our blog. You'll also be able to find this program online at the ICRT website and on iTunes. If you are listening through iTunes, please take a second to rate and review the show. It lets us know what you're thinking and helps other people discover the program. Signing off from the ICRT studio, I am Keith Menconi, joined by Jane Rickards. Jane? Thanks, Keith. And Michael Smith. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. See you again next time on Taiwan This Week. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.